Greetings, everybody, and welcome to episode 128 of Natural MD Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Aviva Ram, physician, midwife, and herbalist, and today I have the unique and distinct pleasure and honor of sharing as a podcast episode an IGTV episode I did recently with an incredible woman, Shafia Monroe, who's been called the queen mother of the midwifery movement and who was my midwife teacher, let's see, 37 years ago. She was the first midwife I ever met. She's an incredible woman, an African-American woman, which is relevant to her being and her story and her sharing. It was just too good not to share with you as a Natural MD radio episode. So sit back or keep running if you're running while you're listening or washing the dishes or doing your work, whatever you're doing, but you're definitely going to want to have some space to pay attention. She, as one viewer said during our IGTV, drops diamonds from her lips. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Shafia Monroe. My guest today is Shafia Monroe. I'm going to read her bio to you. Shafia Monroe has been birthing change all her life. A renowned midwife, doula, trainer, uh, motivational speaker, and cultural, cultural competency trainer, Shafia has been appropriately called the queen mother of the midwife movement. Shafia, I see you're here, so ask to join. Ah, there she is. Okay, let me see. Okay, we are waiting for Shafia. I'm going to keep reading her bio. So this queen mother of the midwife movement, <laughs> queen mother, <laughs> I'm reading your bio. Oh, thank you. She is a true pioneer. From 1978 to 1991, in her hometown of Boston, Shafia served as the primary African-American home birth midwife. Then in 1991, seven months pregnant with her sixth child, Shafia relocated her family to Portland, Oregon. Unable to uh, find an African-American midwife for her home birth, she responded by forming the nonprofit International Center for Tr Traditional Childbearing to increase the number of Black midwives and doulas of color to empower families, reduce infant mortality and maternal mortality, and bring Black midwives together. Erica Badu, a four-time Grammy Award winner, like we need to introduce Erica Badu, <laughs> singer-songwriter and holistic healer, is the ICTC national spokesperson. Shafia's activist roots run deep. Inspired by activist parents, she grew up watching her mother advocate for quality public education, voter registration, and fair housing, and her father create community gardens in vacant lots of Boston and caring for the family land in Alabama. Shafia's parents taught her the importance of standing for justice. So at 17 years old, when she learned that the Black infant mortality rate was two and a half times higher than the white infant mortality rate, she was appalled and knew something had to be done to reduce the disproportionate rate of Black babies dying before their first birthday. So Shafia began training as a home birth midwife, educating members of the Black community on having home births to improve their birth outcomes. She also opened a midwifery school in Boston to increase the number of community midwives. Shafia now runs the SMC Full Circle Doula Birth, training, birth Companion Training. Her groundbreaking doula training program continues to serve as an international model for reducing infant mortality, increasing the number of doulas of color, empowering families for informed consent and physiologic births, and teaching traditional birth and postpartum practices using the legacy of the 20th century African-American midwife. 
Jafia also spearheaded the Oregon Coalition to Improve Birth Outcomes to promote the use of doulas to improve birth outcomes to vulnerable populations. Her work marked Oregon as the first state in the nation to approve Medicaid reimbursement for doulas, and ICTC as the first Oregon Health Authority approved doula credentialing organization. SMC Full Circle Doula Birth Companion Training became Oregon Health Authority approved in 2018. Sophia holds a BA in Sociology, Master of Public Health, and is a member of multiple coalitions to, mater- to improve maternity care. She's been recognized with numerous awards, including a Lifetime Achievement Award from Midwives Alliance of North America and the Dr. Hildreth A. Poindexter Award of the Black Caucus of Health Workers of the American Public Health Association. She spends her free time, like if she has much, <laughs> with her husband and seven children and 10 grandchildren. She enjoys cooking for family and friends, walking, dancing, gardening, Writing, fishing, and horseback riding, and she lives in Portland. Now, before I introduce <laughs> this woman one step further, I have to say something. I was 15 years old when I decided to be a midwife, and the couple that I was living with in a co-op house in Boston had had Shafia as their midwife, Rick and Cindy. They were my close friends, and my husband, the man who became my husband, Tracy, was at that birth as a support person for the older two kids, and Shafia was that midwife. So Shafia was introduced to me by my husband and that community of folks in Boston. I met Shafia when I was just, just before I turned 16 years old. And she graciously took me in under her wing, let me come to her childbirth education classes, prenatal visits. And to me, she is not just the queen mother of midwifery, but she's like the queen mother of my midwifery. And oh, I will today. Thank you. So thank you, Shafia. And thank you in this crazy, crazy Busy time, busy time for midwives and doulas, busy time for black women, trying time for making the time to be here and talk with us today. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Viva Ram. Um, mm-hmm. It just shows how I love the word full circle. Here we are, you know, full circle. Years later, we are back again, you know, still on the same movement of human rights and justice for all people, no matter where they come from, who they sleep with, you know, what they believe in. I'm just appreciative of you being, you know, consistent in your conversation around equity for African-American descent people mm-hmm. in this country and, and worldwide. So thank you for having me. I'm excited to be oh here gosh, today. And can I say, you, I know we've seen each other a few times over the years, but you never look like you have aged a day. <laughs> well, you know, really quick, I, I have this, I have this um, series I started called Black Midwife Cooking. And today I planted the coffee root. And so, you know, they say if you take coffee root and soak it in the water and wash your face, it prevents aging. So that's my demo. I do use coffee root on my face regularly, I as does my entire family. I love that. <laughs> I, uh, I planted five roots yesterday. Okay, and good, bold, good. You no know coffee root, because when you plant five in two years. Right. That, it's a crazy five. weed. But it's I a love crazy it. weed. Yes. Shafia, we could talk about so many things. Um, you know, I've been really thinking a lot lately and reading back into some old, older books um, and newer books too. Like you're probably familiar with Harriet Washington's Medical Apartheid. Yes. I've been rereading some old um, Barbara Ehrenreich and Deidre English. They wrote Witches, Midwives, and Nurses. And, right. you know, we're talking a lot now um, about things that really have been, I saw someone today on Instagram say, um, you know, George Floyd was not, is not a warning call. It's an alarm that's been going off and going off and going off and going off. And we just keep, especially white people just keep, keep hitting the snooze button. Right. You have something on your website that says one of the darkest moments in U.S. history was the systematic eradication of the African-American midwife from her community, resulting in a legacy of birth injustice. I've been talking yes. about obstetric and gynecologic injustice on my 
Instagram and so forth. And I wonder, I think that, I wonder how you feel about that as a starting place for our conversation today. On the, the, the obstetrical abuse? Yeah, why you consider the, the systematic eradication of the midwife kind of like one of the darkest moments. I mean, there's a lot of dark moments in history. You know, I, I think that, I want to say that there's only, uh, and, and I want to start just by saying, you know, if just uh, always my condolences to all the families who have been abused and murdered for unjust causes. I said that moment of silence, everyone, that we cannot just make this a fab. We're going to protest, but this is someone's son. These are people's children parents and so just know that as healers as midwives as spiritual beings their loss is our loss you know we we are one spirit regardless of our color and race now because we really at the end of the day my belief is that it's only one light you know and it's been darkened by systemic racism and i also want to say that you know with all due respect to european history i would let people know that the european history of midwifery is not the african-american history we, we were never burned as, as witches you know we were always reverent in africa and definitely as you know, all the documentation totally uplifts the African-American movement as a pillar for a community. So our, our journey to midwifery is not the same. So when we say, you know, black midwives and witches and, and burn, that is not our, our tradition. There's no record of that for African descent people. And if you have the few records that show it, it's because white Christians came into Africa and taught that type of abnormal behavior. And I also want to add the fact that we're still fighting midwifery in this country as we exact, the, the result of the white patriarchal system that burned their own daughters and women in Europe, they brought that crap to this country, which is why we're still fighting to be elevated as, as female healers and because they're still dominating. So I just want to put that out there. And the reason why I say that the eradication of the black midwife was one of the darkest moments because the black midwife, if you read the information, she was our only link to our African roots. They took our language. They took, they took a lot of things, but they couldn't take how we birthed. That's what we did underground on the plantation those secret societies, we still were able to birth in a traditional way, which was to squat on quilts, which was to be touched, which was to be hugged, which was to be prayed over, which was to be protected. Uh, the aftercare is very much ingrained in the African-American, uh, sorry, in the African tradition. When we talk about the African-American midwife, you know, of old, that's why I said the 20th century, not the 21st century, but the 19th and 20th century, which I hold on to. For whatever reason, that spirit grabbed me as a child and has not let me go. So I'm just like in that world. And I respect what they did so much under hard times. They also saw lynching of men and women. They also saw women with their stomachs cut open, babies falling out. I went to the uh, Black Wax Museum in, uh, in, in, in Baltimore and they have that horrible wax picture of a black woman being cut open with her baby falling out with the white, literally made that wax figure. So we have horrific experiences, but in spite of all that, that black midwife, that African descent midwife kept us linked to our roots. So all the things that we did, how we held our children, how long we breastfed, putting our belly binds on our baby's navel to prevent hernias, wrapping our mother's stomachs, finding earths on the sit-over, bringing them food, involving the men. They really involved the men as a rule. I met my own dad from Alabama saying that, you know, automatically men just knew to pick up heavy things for women. They automatically knew to uh, go get, even though we were strong, they, just, they were systemized through the African-American midwife that there's a certain way that you treat uh, pregnant and new moms. So we lost all that. So now we're afraid to breastfeed. We're afraid to have our babies. You know, our babies are being born too soon. People, no one knows how to help anybody. Like, oh, she's pregnant. What should I do? Well, that was basic common sense. We knew what to do. We knew what kind of foods to give. And 
you know, when to say sit down. And we knew to bring uh, after baby was born. I talked to my friends from Alabama down south. It's so old. They remember that they're like 12. They remember that when someone had a baby, all the women neighbors start going over and not coming back right away. You know, their mm-hmm. moms would leave the house and go to, you know, the Trisha was used to totally clean the woman's house. Before she went to labor, women would go to your house and they would totally clean your house and make it really beautiful for you. We don't do that. Uh, after the baby's born, everyone would go over and, and get food. And this new American model that says that when a baby's born, that the mother should not have company, that again is not African tradition because when you have a baby, it's a time of celebration and we're seeing depression because women are isolated. I've always, they're isolated. I have to be by myself. I shouldn't have any company, but you're not in the village. You're in, a, you're in an urban area in a fifth floor apartment, a condo in your house by yourself and there's no one around. It's different if you were home with your mom had six, six or nine kids. Well, sure, you have all your sisters around. You don't need company. Your family's so huge, but without the extended family, which most of us don't have, we do need educated visitors to come, not just a doula, not just the midwife, because our time is limited. But we need to re-educate community how to value and support that woman for the first year of life. And we talk about the postpartum movement now being the fourth trimester. Again, for African-Americans, we always had a fourth trimester. We didn't call it that. It was common sense. If you came to my house and your child's eight months old, I'm still going to say sit down and let me get you something to eat. And you just and you start working. Have a seat. You just had a baby. We, we always kept doing that but because we left we lost our black midwife we have become very american thinking that well and besides the feminist movement which i believe in equal pay but you know i'm independent to open my door i don't need any help we've been conditioned on both sides of the, of the new mom not asking for help being ashamed that she even thinks she needs help where that was a tradition we were sitting like i'm not gonna do anything i just had a baby that was normal and i was like oh, i had a baby I should be jogging with my, my jogger at six weeks, but they'll be back. I mean, right back to my way. Well, I can cook. I go to work, all this stuff. Then they break down. And so that's why we needed our African-American mother to help us maintain our tradition. We talk about the, the Native American tradition. We talk about the Asian, you know, Ayurvedic, all the Asian herbs, which, by the way, have been stolen out of Africa. And acupuncture came out of Africa. They used thorns and herbs. We document that. And that and Egyptian did it. So we talk about, you know, Chinese herbology, but we never talk about African herbology and African traditions around caring for the new mom. And that's what the African-American wife did. She is, is if you read the book, which I love so much, The Archaeology, the Archaeology of Mothering by Laura Weekly, she just did a great job of talking about that. She said specifically that African-American wife kept the beautification traditions in the black community. She kept the tradition of mothering from an African perspective. She taught how we did it. And so we lost that. So we don't know anymore because it's been gone. We only can be Dr. Spock. And I'm not going to talk about babies wearing diapers at three years old. I mean, why are babies three years old still going through their back on themselves? These babies are dancing on TV. They can FaceTime. They're doing everything. They're playing soccer. They cannot defecate in the toilet. Like That is not an African tradition. Our children were party trained at six months, at least by one year without violence, but they're taught to be clean. And now this whole movement in America, let your child just defecate till they get ready. We're making our pampers bigger and bigger and bigger, and it doesn't make any sense. And it's not part of our tradition, but because we don't have our midwife telling us how to do it, what's right, we're just following the crowd. And it's really not working for African descent people or anybody, in my opinion. So I will stop there. No, please, nobody wants me to stop. (laughs) Never stop. So you realized that you needed to become a midwife. I mean, I was able to find you and Sister Saran and Nasra. Who did you find? 
<sighs> well, you know, I just like, I had, I made this mantra that I share with you all in the public. Feel free to take it. For a long time, you know, you look around and you say, I got to keep going further and further to be successful. And then one day I say, you know what, Shafia, you're already successful. So I say that I'm divinely guided. I'm truly blessed. I'm living my, I'm living my success right now. So I was divinely guided to become a midwife. I never knew about the word midwife. It's amazing. My dad's born at home. My grandmother was born like two days after enslavement ended. I grew up in a rural Southern town where we run barefoot. Everyone's black. And I'm running by all these old women. I found out years later, they were all midwives. Their dad tells me later, Miss Mamie Lee, Miss Sarah May. Like, Dad, why didn't you, I didn't think it was a big deal? But when I want to go talk, they already passed away. But I did sit at their feet as a young girl. I remember them telling me things like, you know, don't sit on the stone after you give birth. Don't sit on the cold step because it will get in your womb. And, you know, looking about menopause, uh, the change of life, what to do so you don't go crazy. And just... They're just how strong they were. And I feel that, um, I don't get to request, but I just feel that the strength that they showed me helps me do the work that I do today. And so I didn't plan on being a midwife. I had never heard of it. I wanted to be a veterinarian. I wanted to be a jet setter. I didn't want kids. I have seven kids, been pregnant 13 times, had several miscarriages. So it was my destiny. So what happened? My mother dies at 15 and I moved to a, um, a Muslim community um, and because uh, I ran away from home, another story. But, um, you know, freaked out. Your mom dies. And back then, there's no counseling for kids. You just kind of lose my dad the best he could. But it was a blessing. I go to a home where the woman was pregnant. She was seven months pregnant, having her third baby. I'm 15. She's 35. I just loved her. I followed her around the house. I was getting automatic dueling. You want water? Can I touch your stomach? Oh, my God. What does it feel like? So she's like, this girl. So she gave me a book to read. It was called Emergency Childbirth for Fathers. I memorized that book. And then one day she's gone and she comes back. She went to the hospital. I didn't even know she went to the hospital, had the baby. I remember seeing her stomach, uh, you know, she got undressed in front of me. Like, I remember seeing her stomach and feeling, you know, wrinkly with the stretch marks and still looking five months pregnant. And she's putting a girdle on, which was the tradition of wrapping the stomach. They took that away and they replaced it by the girdle. Of course, now we've gone back to using the cloth. But all that stayed in my mind. Then one day she said, you know, you should be an obstetrician. You like this so much. Why don't you become an obstetrician? Never heard of that. So I talked to my dad, I mean, my uncle said, well, you shouldn't think about being a midwife. So I never heard of that. Looked it up. And then somewhere I was reading something about implementality midwife. And then the word black midwife came up. I could not, I don't know how big the paragraph was, but I read it. It got into my soul. My mind's like, I'm going to be like those ladies. I want to be just like them, strong, powerful, God conscious, and serve my community and make a difference. And that's been on my path ever since. And so there were no black midwives in Boston. I stood on the UMass campus. Every black woman walked by. I would say, excuse me, are you a midwife? They look at me and say, are you a midwife? And finally, someone from the Congress said, I'm a midwife. I said, no, you don't know me. Now I'm 16. I said, I have to be a midwife and you have to train me. And she's like, who is this crazy girl? So anyway, she did bring me to a house. She tried to show me. I couldn't get it. I, I had no biology, no physiology. I'm like, what are you talking about? But Slowly but surely, I read that book. And then I found, um, I had a home birth, my own. Uh, I was 21, married, had my first home birth. Could not find a, a midwife. There was no black midwife. So I found an older a Jewish doctor, Dr. Elia. He was really great. He came to the house. I'm in the bed. He went to the other room, fell asleep, and stayed there. I'm sure he was awake. I was in labor for 24 hours, and I never made a sound on my back because I was waiting for this horrible thing to happen that never happened. Like, oh, it's going to be horrible. So I was laying there waiting. Uh, I had an African-American labor and delivery nurse from Boston City on my left, my husband on my right. And I just lay in that bed. No one said a word. It was like a silent day. No one said a word. I didn't say anything. 
And I guess that made a strange sound. The doctor came and said, oh, okay, it's time to push. I guess I would, he must have heard me make that automatic grunting sound. He was listening. And I remember him saying, um, don't push. And I'm like, I'm pushing this baby out. He's like, and I, I remember saying, last thing I said, no matter what you do, do not cut me. And I got that out of my mouth. And so I pushed my little son out, seven pounds, eight ounces. And uh, oh, God, he was so gorgeous. And um, I didn't tear. And that was it. I know the doctor came and said, why don't you get up? I'm like, get up. And I remember he said, do you want to birth on the kitchen table? I'm like, no, I'm going to not birth on no kitchen table in my kitchen. I'm going to stay in the bed. Those small conversations. But um, after he left, he came back to check. We said, you know, there's another black woman. I just helped her have her baby at home, Majida Medadine. He gave me the number. I called her. And that's when the world opened up. Majida Medadine, I love, was alive in Alabama, a few years older than me. Her mother was an African-American um, traditional midwife in Alabama. And she worked with the mom, plus she's a registered nurse. So with her, I finished my skill building through her and some other midwives. And I also worked as a nurse's aide at Boston City. I got that job on purpose to, to learn. I put me on the postpartum floor. I wanted the, the delivery floor, but I'm glad I was on the postpartum floor. I spent one year, 11 to 7 shift, with, you know, shortage of staff. I got to do all kinds of things I probably shouldn't have been doing. Having to remove digits, watching circumcision talking to the women in the bed all night from all over the world at Boston City about their experiences. Um, it was amazing. And then I had I two did that at Grady Hospital down in Atlanta. Yeah, isn't that good? I, you know, I was, I was, what shift? Would you love the seven shift? Uh, it was the, it, we had to go through a day shift. Because okay, we were part okay. Of a, the midwives, Saran. Right, we, right, we, right. Zinga, some of the other women, we created uh, like a volunteer program. But it was no, really eye-opening. It, it is, before it there is. Were, there was before there was ever a birthing center. People were still like, the high, hot, and hell of a lot epidural. Right, right. Upside down and spanking them. Right. But what I like, I like the fact that you can can actually get on the floor now. You can't even get in a hospital. All security and buttons are like, you're like locked out from your family. You just, then you just walk in. I have midwives from Pakistan. So I really feel blessed. You know, Majida from Alabama, two older midwives from Alabama, uh, a midwife from Pakistan, uh, a a physician from Morocco. So I felt like I had a nice diversity of, um, uh, people helped me learn to become a, a traditional midwife. And then Majid and I working for years together. Then she left. And then I was the major African-American midwife um, in Boston until I moved to Portland, Oregon. So doing like about, I don't know, five births a month. It was a busy, I was young, babies on my back. I don't know how I, how I did it. I don't know what I was even doing. I barely I remember. remember. The first hand <laughs> I ever had on a belly was someone showing me how to palpate a belly. It was <laughs> oh, good, in good, your good. house. I think it was, in, it was in Roxbury. Right, right, right. I, I think I rented an office space. The first floor. Was in Jamaica Plain? Mm, or was no, it Roxbury? It was at your house. Okay, well, good yeah, for you. It was good a young memory. white couple having a baby. I pointed them your way. You looked, you were like, come to the prenatals. They're yeah, like, yeah. Okay, yeah. good, good, good. I'm glad. Yeah. So how did you start to put the pieces together? Of like, I think about it as, like, when I think of the word remembering in this context, I literally think of like putting a body back together, you know, like, recreating reclaiming how did you start to put together the pieces of traditional practices in what you were doing as a midwife had you learned that all along like belly wrapping and herbs or did you kind of have to dig deep to find that um not too deep so i want to say one thing this whole protesting movement and all of this in the black lives matter and i proudly say without giving my age that I am a product of the civil rights movement. I'm a product of the Black Panther Party movement. I'm a product of all those movements. So all of that had me already being proud to be a black woman. We said then, black is beautiful. I was called, I walked down the street and black women said, you know, my queen. I grew up with that. And I, and I really feel for the system, the government, they eradicated that movement. It was successful. 
it was successful having um, the Black Panther Party creating the first breakfast program. People don't realize that free lunch and free breakfast come from the Black Panther Party movement. Sickle cell anemia for being uh, tested when you're pregnant comes from the Black Panther movement. So, so many good things came and people just think it was all violent, but it wasn't. It was about being organized. So that's my my process, along with my mom and dad being active. I, I, I come from an entire era where the whole country was reclaiming our African heritage. You know, we're wearing our head wrap, which I still do. You know, we're wearing our dashikas. We changed our names. We were doing, we were learning. So it was, it was an amazing time that I really feel this era never had it. They, they, they killed it because it was effective to know who you are and to identify with Africa as your continent, which is why I say African-American, that is my tribe, and to be able to link my okra out of West Africa with my grandma cooking okra and knowing now why I like watermelon. It was, it was embarrassing. Oh, black people like watermelon. Something's wrong with you. Well, yeah, well, you know what? Watermelon comes from Africa. No wonder we love it. It's our food. But we didn't learn that. So it was a combination of me going up and getting a, we go to visit Alabama and every guy would come by, every farmer who knew my dad uh, would give us a watermelon like a day. So I just, you know, I just, I love watermelon. Of course, it's great when you're pregnant, but you know, as a child, that's normal. You know, that was dessert. You know, big watermelons out in the metal tin under the tree to keep them cool to be ready for them. So it was a combination of just watching my grandmother tell me when she got her big scar, like, Grandma, how'd you get that long scar on your leg? When I was eight, I fell on the plow. What'd you do? We took um, spider webs and tripped it and they wrapped my leg. Mm. I mean, so I remember hearing that, watching her eat um, Vicks vapor, eat, you know, take a drop of Vicks on her throat, you know, for a cold and watching her make the onion soup. And when the horse bit me, they just poured kerosene on it. And, so just that kind of watching as a child, just how they treat us when we were sick. And first of all, you don't get sick, they would say, and you're not tired. Two things we weren't allowed to say. You never could be tired, which I highly, I tell my kids, you're not tired. I'm like, but no, you're not tired. I grew up, you're not tired. You know, if you're tired, you're lazy. And everybody now is tired. Like, everyone's like, like, I can't handle it. I grew up with strong women. You didn't say you were tired. You would just lay down. You didn't have to announce it. You're tired, go lay down and get back. And nobody cares about you being tired. The world's tired, they say. We've been tired. So all of that of my of the women in my lives and on the Southern part, very amazing women, you know, grew up uh, having to pick cotton, watching them, you know, shell the peas on the front porch, watch them string their braids with the string, all the things that I realized was African traditional. They didn't even know it. But I learned later when I studied the link of Africa, you know, in particularly West and remembering now in Alabama, even my dad, like there's this, this delicious meal where you take uh, it's called Banku out of Ghana. You ferment the cornmeal in a dark place so you get your probiotics. You cook it and then you dip it in the okra stew. And I remember my dad would take the cornbread with his fingers, his right hand, which is also very African. You don't use your right. And he would dip his cornbread in, they called then the slop or the stew and um, or the gravy. And Ian, like, why does he use a fork? And I hung out with Africans years later, able to use the hand. So even he didn't know why he was doing this. I just love that link. So between all that memory, and as you know, Aviva Ram, I have read, like you have run, I think I've, I've read so many books on African-American midwives. And I tell people, it's so hard to find. I have just collected books. They only had one line, literally it has one sentence. I buy that book because there is no way to find it all. It has, it's, they took it and they threw it away and they hid it. So we have to just find all these one links, maybe get a half a page. There's a couple of books written here and there about African-American midwives, but between the oral histories, my own traveling, my own memories, and putting all together, uh, I'm done now. I've done it. And I, I hope to get my book out to say what I learned and how to do it and how wonderful it is and how to be proud to be an African-American midwife. You know, 
Um, and I say African-American as opposed to black because black is great, but we are from the African diaspora. They took African, they brought us all over the world, England, Brazil, uh, Spain, Portugal, uh, Jamaica, all these places. And so my tribe is African-American. We do things a certain way. I don't eat the exact same foods as Jamaicans or uh, Barbadian. We have similar foods, but there's a difference. It's okay to have our individuality, but then have our collective peace. And so because of the enslavement style in United States of America for African descent people, we really had to rely on our African-American midwives. In the Caribbean, because they were, they were bigger and the white, uh, the Europeans left them alone a lot on those islands. They really did let them kind of self-manage. They were able to maintain longer periods, a lot more of their tradition as opposed to ours being broken the way that it did. So it really was the African-American midwife who was able to keep us linked. And what I'm seeing now, even though people are becoming midwives, they don't have the whole the whole concept, it's not just that it's gotten the baby out. Anyone can do that. It's the part before the baby's born. It's the community because why babies die, not only because of the white medical system is, is racist. That's definitely one piece of it. But the other part is that we have lost the tradition of how we nurture and care for each other as an African-American people because we weren't allowed to do it. And what little bit we had, again, as you know, in the 1920s with that Shepherd Towner Act, making midwifery illegal, which really was black midwives illegal and, 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 and vilifying us as being dirty and too black and superstitious and all this kind of stuff and replacing our black midwives who are elders with very young, modern thinking black women, but mainly replacing our midwives with young black white nurses who in their own mind, they meant well, but of course they had implicit bias. If not straight out racist, they had a lot of implicit bias. So they continued to say what your grandmother's saying, don't do it. What your mother's saying, don't do it. And they really created a divide between, uh, but not all, but believing our moms as opposed to believing the medical, the medical uh, establishment. And so it, it was a loss. But I want to say at the same time, I'm very proud of all the African-American women out there who are in midwifery school. I know it's a struggle. I know you're dealing with racism. I know you're dealing with implicit bias. I've been on the front line as a leader, as I mentioned, in most of the big circles, from U.S. Mirror to ACNM to MANA, to Master Midwives Alliance of North America. Uh, what's the other one? Master's Alliance of Massachusetts <laughs> and just um, being involved. So I know that that systemic racism runs through this country in every single educational route, doula, everything is there. And so for you to be out there, I really commend you and say, don't give up because you are absolutely needed. And once you get out, you can then put your, your um, style on how you're going to serve. So just put up with it at the same time, stand your ground. Not to know that you're not going to say that to me, you're not going to treat me this way. You know, call in the forces. There's many other people. You have Dr. Viva Ram, you have me. There's many leaders out here who will, will back you up, but don't be in isolation, you know, because that's going to cause depression. I was told by a, uh, a Puerto Rican nurse that for most African American midwife students or even of color students, they have to take a year off because it's so traumatic. They can't even get through the program. Whereas a white woman can just go ahead and she can just, she can just get done. And at the same time, I've had plenty of white midwives say, you know what, my apprentice was horrible. She was condescending. But still, even with that, it's a zillion times more for an African descent person. Yeah, we know that white women, you had a hard time with those, but it's not even the same. The privilege is still there, no matter what. Even if you're a poor white woman in Appalachia. In fact, really quick, I'm reading about the granny midwives of the South, how they're eradicating them. And in that one line that I read, the Appalachian midwives said that we're not going to stop being midwives in our community because it's part of our tradition. They were left alone to continue the white Appalachian free movement back in the 20s. Well, at the same time, when we said it, 
that nobody cares. So even that kind of consistent um, inequity happens. But again, for you all out there who are in middle free school stay, if you are a white educator, you know, don't late, don't wait until we have a, another murder of African-American, just you know already this stuff exists. And really, if you're not sure how to educate uh, without implicit bias, you know, take a class or pay your student to say, what's the best way for me to do this? Or call Chef Femoral Consulting. I do cultural competency to figure out, because there is a way to talk. I remember being a young girl in class and they would talk about Black History Month. I remember getting in my chair, predominantly white school in Boston. Okay, Black History Month. Black people were slaves. That was it. I hated that. That was so embarrassing. I don't want to hear that. I want to hear that all black babies are dying. I want to hear that they went to Africa, an amazing continent, the first place where all life began in Africa. And they came in and they deceived and they used alcohol and they stole free people who were doctors, who were midwives, who were educators, who were scholars, that they stole them and they forced them into enslavement. I would have felt, but that's the truth. We weren't slaves. No, we weren't born slaves. We were push and made to be enslaved. And we fought on the ship, we fought in Africa, we fought with natural and even the silent fights. There's tons of fights that we don't even know about. We consistently resisted it. And then I don't want to hear that, oh, black women, you know, you all are more prone for dying, you're weathering, your body's old. I don't want to hear that in your in your class. You better talk about that we are absolutely strong. We have a higher resilience. Our premature babies have a higher rate of living than any baby in this country who are born too soon because our babies are the strongest. I'm sorry, it's a fact. And that we are only having this issue because of systemic racism, not because we're genetically inferior. We are genetically superior. I'm going to say that because there's no way we couldn't be to still be in this country under these conditions of food deserts and, and cost. And we're still smiling. We haven't gone crazy. We're still being nice to our neighbors. We're still going to church and we're still voting. So we are extremely amazing being as of all, but we have our different tribes, as I mentioned. And so I want you to teach from that strength-based place that if babies are dying and black women are dying, black men are dying, not because there's something wrong, not because I'm weathered, because you're not treating me right and I'm having to have an abnormal conditions and that's why I'm having a hard time. So I just want Sophia, to put it out. For, mm -hmm. for black women, women of color who are working in getting their training, right? In, uh, you know, white, dominant, misogynist, racist, patriarchal institution. Yeah, all that. You know, as a white woman getting my training in medicine, I saw horrible things, but I was right. in a way, I, well, I was older right. and my nature is not to be quiet. So when I saw things, I would get up and fight. And really, right. I saw horrible things and horrible things happen to black women. Everything from white nurses saying, you know, that person, that woman, or right. imitating voicing, you know, she doesn't need that much morphine. And I'm like, she has sickle cell anemia. Right. Any idea how much pain she's in? If she says she needs that much morphine, she's not here drug seeking. Give her right. effing morphine. You know. Good for you. To um situation. Thank you. To situations where, um, I saw some pretty horrible attempted abuses and even a couple of outright abuses of black women, African American women in labor. And I think that, like, I know for me as a white woman, like, just coming home and seeing that abuse. Is, is so painful and having to step right. up do something is so scary. How do you advise black women who are watching their sisters going through this system, but if these women speak up, they may lose their job? Because I think that creates so much internal conflict. How do you recommend to deal with that? Or if you can't 
step up in the moment? How do you recommend to process it and feel? Well, I mean, for one, if, if something's happening right now, oh, sorry, <laughs> my foot. No, go ahead. If, if, you know, they say if you see something, I, I love it with this whole uh, TSA, you know, 9-11. You see something, <laughs> say, say something. something. <laughs> so we'll just use that same thing for Ivy. If you see something, say something. You know, I trained the SMC full circle duels on that. It's how you say it. Excuse me. I don't think she, she asked for that. Excuse me, can you wait for a moment? She needs to think about that. Oh, excuse me, we want another doctor. Or excuse me, let's please talk to the president. Um, excuse yeah, me, let's get excuse out the room. Me, that is assault. I have right, right. had to be in a labor room and say, not even excuse me, but right. stop that right now. That right. Assault. And here's the thing for us. When we, and you can say stop, that's assault. And you may not get kicked out. We say exactly. that's assault. We got to deal with security. So exactly. we, we are in a, in, in a war area. And so you have to be strategic and how, you know, if you want to go, you know, blow to blow, that's your choice. But I try to first start with just being neutral voice and saying a command like you do to a dog. Stop. You know, not that I'm telling you, but just stop. Just that one word, stop. Don't do that. She didn't ask for that. And then you have to go one step further. If you um, don't want to do that, then the, the next thing to do, of course, is always to write letters as soon as it's over, get names. You know, if you have your phone, you know, snap their face, snap yep. their picture, you know, videotape them, just like the cops, you know, videotape what you're doing. Yep. Um, it's, 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 it is a lot of work. It is a lot of work. It's, it's unbelievable. I've had to shut down emotionally ever since. But first of all, I tell people, before George Floyd, I still have, because the kind of mind I have, it, things don't leave me. So I still have um, Ed, Edmund Tillman, Tillard, the little boy that got killed in Mississippi how many years ago? Mm -hmm. Thank you. And, and the white woman finally admitted on her deathbed that she had lied. So I have that. So it's the trauma, besides, forget the realization, but the trauma is in our world because we keep seeing it. So I am personally... I'm pulling back and watching all this. But if I go to a birth and I do assist women and I do have to advocate, um, even when I bring my own children to the hospital, I remember bringing my daughter to the hospital. She's like nine. They're calling her name. Okay. She just said she's 12. They're calling her name. I had to run. It's like, I told her, say, you know what? She's 12. I made the appointment. I'm paying the bill. So she doesn't go in the room until I get in the room with her. Then they tell me at 14 that I can sit outside. I said, oh, you don't know who you're talking to. Who are you? And who's a doctor? And you don't even come in. So, yeah. Mothers and dads, when they say you don't you don't go into your room with your with your teenage child, tell them to go jump over it and go in the room. Unless my child tells me that I can't come in, you're not gonna get my child in that room by him or herself to ask all these questions and give them things, which is probably gonna be the um what's that thing? The PVI, the what's that vaccination they want to give everybody? Oh, uh, the um the um for uh HPV. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So we my, we decided we didn't want that, you know. Uh or even your daughter who's a virgin, why is she getting a, why is she getting a GYN exam? She doesn't even have a sex. Yep. Things that we just had conditioned. It's time for GYN. She had a period and she's 16. So she's still a virgin. She hasn't had sex. You're not going to put a speculum in her body. We can say no to those things. We have to start thinking, you know, outside the box, giving our children a birth control pill for their periods because they're having cramps. Yeah. As soon as they're eight years old or 12 years old, let's talk to Dr. Viva Ram and see what our options are. Let's see a naturopath. Let's go and look up a book and give, make some of our cramp bark and a red rabbit and our nettle and give it to our daughters and change their diet and get them off a consistent medicine. The birth control is a medicine. You know, it's not normal. It should be the last resort. Just kind of rethink. And these are things that African-American people of the 20th century would say, let's use our herbs. Let's trust in God. Let's use our mother whip before we go to, excuse the expression, the white man 
who don't like us anyways and believes in sterilization for black women, African-American women, <laughs> Puerto Rican women, well, whoever's in the audience, um, yeah. you know, uh, want to do routine sterilization. That hasn't changed. They still don't think that African-Americans are having children. You know, we're having no, too many. I was writing on my Instagram that people, people were shocked. They were writing yesterday. I was like, this was happening until the 1980s, legally. Right, right. United States, frequently. And, and, and it still happens subtly because, but, but even here, I mean, Deborah was brought to education. You coerce a woman yeah. into something, yeah. Or Deborah going to all the high schools in inner yeah. cities. So all the young black girls are getting a free shot for one year when Deborah was not even designed for black people. Black women are bleeding like crazy, you know fibroid expand, the hair falling out, nobody cared, wasn't designed for us. So even to ask those questions, I always ask the doctor, was, what, what was the study? First of all, how, how long has it been out? Uh, would you give it to your own mother or daughter or son? Um, what are the side effects and what are my options? And if I don't take it, what will happen? By the way, usually nothing, by the way. So then I say, okay, well, I don't want it. So we have to just ask him more questions and be empowered. And I, what I like about the African-American midwife, she was an elder. So she's like me. She was uh, subjective. You know, we're not just It's my opinion. I give my opinion. If you don't like it too bad, that's why that's the, that's the, the grace of being an older person. <laughs> I, I tell my like, ah, you shouldn't be doing that. Mom, I don't care. You shouldn't be doing that. That's, that's not right. Don't do it. I'm like, well, I'm going to go ahead. It's up to you. But I, not all this stuff. I you know say things correctly. Like, you're five. Sit your butt. There ain't no conversation happening over here. Sit down. Get a book. You're not going to jump up and down and destroy the house. People say, oh, Mama Shafia, how did you do birth with your children? I had seven kids, and this picture of me with babies on my back, children sitting on the yep. floor, holding, holding a bulb of center for me. I think he was this like eight. A, Mama Saran brought this back for me from Ghana. Beautiful. It's a, mid, it's a midwife. The baby, her on her baby on her back. Her own, exactly. And the thing is that when we talk about the parenting, we love our children, but there is a, a thing called respect that we believe in in Africa deeply and in the South that you respect your elders, reverence the womb that bore you, but God ever watches over you is what we say. And so it doesn't mean that your children have to, well, mine's have to give me money. But besides that, um, <laughs> but I tell them, I agree. And I you talk to them every Sunday, you told me once? Oh, yeah, every Sunday. Yeah, every Sunday. And we grew up that way. I had to talk to my elders every Sunday. So it's a tradition. Everybody calls. So Sunday, you just sit there with your team, you get all these phone calls. And it's, it's wonderful. It's something to be short, but you can't forget your mother. That's, that, you know, it doesn't happen. We talk all the time, but you have to call on Sunday. So I want to say for those who are going to have children, have children. If you want to be a, a birth worker or a midwife, do whatever you want to call it, and you have children, bring your children into the work as, as they're, they're part of the work. I'm not going to work. We're going to go save a life, I told my children. And they grew up that way. And to this day, all of them are still active. They have the other careers, carpenters, fashion designers, but they all know about how to take care of a pregnant woman because they were raised in it. And they all knew if you went to a birth, it was a sacred time. You're not going to scream, jump, and touch everything. You're going to sit still, eat your peanut butter and jelly sandwich back then. It was the same. It was no yo. You got a sandwich. You had your toys. It was no fun. You had your book. You brought your Legos. And, of course, you put the blanket out. But, of course, they need you. And I always got permission for the family. You know, I, I don't yeah. have a child care. It's okay if I bring my children. But we need to raise our children to understand that the boundaries and now we're raising our children that they can do anything they want and there is no boundary and that's not good that is not the african way there is structure in the world the sun comes up at a certain time the moon wanes and wax. if we didn't have order in nature we would all be dead everything we can rely on the seasons we can rely on when to grow our food because it's called order so it's also in the birth world 
you know, we know there's nine months. We know there's so many stages of this order. So the same with our children. They have to be part of the order. So for their own sake and for my sake, as their mom, as a very active person, they need to be organized and ordered. And they need to know who's in charge. That was me. And that's why I teach. So if you come to my house and your kids are jumping around, believe me, I'm old school. I'm going to put them in check. Now, hey, don't do that. They look like, oh, my God, who is that one? Because, you know, your eyes tell everything. Like, I'm not playing, okay? <laughs> I, think had, I think you either had three, I think you had three children when I met you, and they would hang out in that front room. Right. Yeah. Quiet. You didn't even hear Quiet. Them, right? Quiet. <laughs> and you yeah. know what? And they're all happy. No one, I asked them, they said, did I mess up? Like, listen, Ma, you did an amazing job. We love, like, I, are, you, are you messed up because I made you be still or whatever the case? I know we loved our life. We're so glad that you raised the way we did. We're so grateful. You're an awesome mom. Which is why they call me. My daughter bought me a car. They always give me gifts. They always treat me so nice because I'm a nice person. <laughs> and I treat them nice by treating like I expect them to help me. This is serious, you guys. We got babies dying. We have to work. We, we have to make a deal. I need you all to help me. And yeah, my you know, Sophia, I think what you're saying is something that has really guided me. I mean, when I need to rest, I rest. When I need to right. stop, stop. Right. There's a sense for me you know, that I think brought me to you, but also instilled by you, instilled by the birth work that I've been doing, the awareness of what's happening in the world, that we can push ourselves a little harder. Right. We can actually keep doing the work. There is a lot of work to be done. And there's a lot of emphasis in the wellness world about taking care of ourselves. And we do. Right. It's all the self-care. Right. But I mean, <laughs> and even Audre Lorde, I mean, she said, right, self-care is an act of civil, of like self-defense. Right, right. It's important. Right. Right. Um, for the mamas out there, for the women out there who are pregnant, um, who really are afraid to go to the hospital right now, and especially mm. black women who are really, I'm hearing from black women in my community, in right. online space, women are scared to go to the hospital right now, scared to have babies right now. Some women are just scared to bring their babies into the world right now. I mean, you've lived through rough times. You've been through the civil rights movement. What guidance and wisdom do you have for Mamas who are scared right now. I'm going to say get rid of that fear immediately. Because I, I just talked to my own niece who's pregnant. She calls me. Oh, I'm so sad, Auntie. I hear the news on TV about George Floyd. I don't want to have a son. I say, first of all, don't think that. You need to go and read Genesis. Though I'm not a Christian, but read Genesis where Moses' mother, they were told, we're going to kill all the firstborn sons, by the way. So this is old attack of, of, of dark-skinned sons um, or children. And so we can't allow the society to dictate, it's a form of genocide that makes us not want to have children. It's another subtle way. It's, they're not cutting your tube. They're making the situation seem so bad that you feel you don't have the right to reproduce. So I have three sons. Uh, my, my, my brother was shot and killed at 19, not by the police, but unfortunately by another young black man, which is also an issue. But I never felt like, I never felt fear that that was going to happen to my child. And I tell you all out there, as I told my niece, quit watching the bad news. As the old midwife said, if you watch bad things and say bad things, you're going to mark your baby. So what the marking meant, not so much a mark on them, but you're going to affect them. We know that our babies can hear and see in the uterus. We know that we're putting our headphones off with classical music. I put African drumming on for mines. But so we know that they can hear. They don't need to hear. Say, oh, I don't want to have a son. What if my son died? They can hear that. That's going to make them have problems inside. There's a doctor who says there's three things for a positive birth. A woman being in a good relationship with their own biological mother. Uh, two, if possible, having a positive relationship with the biological father. And three, wanting her baby. So you have to want your, your male child and not be afraid of them and don't put fear of them. So protect your psyche. That's the self-care I would recommend. Turn the TV off. That bad news is going to be there. 
I love the music because no matter when I turn it's the same thing. That's the matter. No matter when I turn it's going to be bad news. You're not going to miss anything. You know, go the nine months. And if you need to hear about the weather, you know, Google something positive and don't allow that. And in terms of going to the hospital, again, you know, you have to get rid of fear. Fear is a crippling thing. We are a brave people. And so don't buy into that. You know, bring your friend. Go talk to your physician. My latest talk I was doing with some doulas online is that put in your birth plan that I want you to protect me from racism in the hospital. I want you to protect me from any maternal problem. Put that in your birth plan and, and talk to the doctor about it. Bring an article that gives the news. Say, how, how can I depend on you? What can I expect you? So it's clear that racism exists in the world, in this institution. I'm, I'm putting in my birth plan that I want you to protect me from it. So, uh just like, you know what, just hold, hold your space and know that you're going to be okay. Don't own it. We talk about affirmations. Like I'm going to buy a house. I'm going to get my degree. You have to say, I'm going to have a healthy full-term baby and I'm going to be okay. You have to chant that and not put yourself in that narrow space. It's, it's a reality, but we don't have to own it and, and, and eat it and digest it and sing it. You have to do the complete opposite. And I believe that you will be okay I'm in your birth. And we pray for those who do not make it. We're going to continue to work and hold those accountable for letting moms bleed and not listen to them. You know, um, see, that's what I'm saying about the birth. If you can find a home birth, uh, midwife, great. But the thing about home birth, it's not for everybody. And that's why it's so important we fight for justice because everybody can't have a home birth. They need to be in a hospital for whatever medical problems they have. It's not fair that they're stuck being in a negative place. So we have to go fix the hospital. Whether, you, whether I have, I had all my babies at home except for one, by the way. I had um, seven children, six home births. My last baby I tried to have at home. I was 42, by the way, having my last baby, proudly. Gained a bunch of weight. But either way, I was fine. <laughs> I took forever to get it off. But um, I wound up having to go to the hospital. My water broke two days prior, which happened with my other child, still home birth. But I had to go to the hospital. And fortunately, in, in Oregon, I knew the midwives. I called the midwife. Head midwife was on. And I, and I went in and I got, um, I got okay care. Of course, they run, took my baby really quick because two days water broke. It's, it's the norm. They kind of had showed it to me. And then my friend was with me. I said, you know, go. She ran with, she ran with the doctor. But I had no regrets about that. It wasn't like, oh, I, I never felt like I failed. It's not like my daughter wanted to know what happened. Like, why was I not born at home? Mom? What happened with me? Like, well, obviously it was destiny. I need to have the hospital birth experience. So don't feel like going to the hospital is a failure. It's your right to birth where, with whom, and when you choose. If you need to go to the hospital. If you want to go to the hospital, don't feel like you can't go there. We have to just change it and make the hospital uh, work for you. Shafia, what do you feel like is something we all really need to know right now, white women, black women, but, but honestly, I, I'm sure I have way more white women in my audience than black women, although I see some incredible messages coming here from sisters too, saying diamonds falling from your lips and other things. Um, you know, as black women, as white women, what do we need to do when we, we hear when a black man is killed by the police, we hear when a white, a black woman is killed by the police, but women are dying in childbirth, black women every single day. And it's like a violence that's okay not literally, but it's, we're, we're told it's okay because it's happening in the labor and delivery room and we did everything we could, but it's, it's as horrible and devastating as police violence and more, more frequent in some ways. The deaths are more frequent and hidden. What do we need to do collectively and individually? I would say a lot. 
You know, I, I give the example that there's, there's no one way to make a cake. It takes the flour, the butter, you know, the sugar, the, whatever you use, gluten-free, but it's not one ingredient. So it's going to be a, collum- a conglomeration of many things that we have to do. But I would say, most importantly right now, I think we need white people to stop being afraid of black people. I travel all over this country, on the plains, everywhere, and still I cannot get eye contact from white people. I cannot get a hello from white people. I look at them and I say hi. They just look the other way, act like they don't hear, like they don't speak English. Also the Arabs, also the Chinese as well, and also Latina. They all reject African-American people who try to do overtures of being cordial. And so we can't even have eye contact and say hello to each other. That's the first problem. Because you can't work together if you can't trust. And I can't trust if you, cannot, if you don't even say hi to me when I speak to you. So let's let's work on basic human behavior. If someone speaks, you speak back. I didn't say be my best friend or have just like, hey, hi, hi. Don't look down when you see me. Specifically, you look down so you don't have to speak. Is that because you feel guilty, white guilt? Is that because you hate black people? I don't know, but it makes me feel like I can't trust you. So let's just start with that. Let's teach our children when a black person says hello to say hi back. He's not tired. He's being rude. Hi. Oh, he's just saying, no, he's eight. He's not tired. He's rude. Teach a child to respond to me. I'm an elder. Or I'm a human being. So let's teach those kind of things, those basic things. If you're in the medical field, you know, take your cultural competency and just try to say to myself, how would I, even myself, how would I treat this person if they was a family member, unless you hate your family, we don't want you. If you love your family, mm-hmm. you know you're gonna give you're gonna give them extra care. You're gonna give them the morphine. You're gonna speak to them. You're gonna sit down and be calm and and, and don't yell at them and try to be open minded. So just treat us like you would treat your own family for starters. And in the meantime, too, for white America, you know, advocate and try to work with your racist family. I do cultural competency, and I have white men say all the time, I had to move away from my family. They're so racist. I can't even, I can't even go around them. And I can't be with them. So I come from a racist home. I was taught to hate black people. They're in my classes saying this, you know, and tears are being shed. So we know that you come from racist family. I commend you if you broke away. And sometimes we can't change our families. You know, anybody, you know, it's not your fault, but continue to try to to change those around you and change your own behavior um, to find the books out there to read, to understand the history. Let's learn black. Let's learn American history that America is built on the blood, sweat, and the geniuses of African-Americans. You know, the train stop, the light stop, the shoe, the cotton mill, you know, Dr. Drew with the blood transfusion, the first Siamese uh, separate. We don't hear that. We don't hear that we do anything. We do so much. So when you hear that everything you're benefiting from actually comes from African-Americans, that might also open up your mind. Let's expand the educational process of of the truth. So I want to end... Uh, with that piece there. And then lastly, in terms of material mortality, I'm reading uh, something. This came out in the uh, South Carolina Perinatal Journal, and it shows that the African-American material mortality was very high, and now it's starting to go down in 20, uh, where are we, 2018. But what's going up that we're not talking about is white American women have a higher rate. Their material mortality, by the way, is increasing. Are you aware of that? Yep. Yeah. So, we're the only one of only two countries in the world where our overall mortality rate. For so, I, so I think that's a conversation for women of all races to come together to say collectively, we don't want any mother to die. We definitely don't want to be this huge gap of black women having a higher death rate. But also, I want to see white women. I don't want to see white women's uh, rates go up either. You know, I want to see 
mothers live to have their children. And granted, I'm a, I'm a God conscious person. There is life and death. We all have our time. You know, I tell my kids all the time when I die, this is what I want you to do. I've taught them that my day is going to come. And so everyone, everyone's not going to make it. And that's okay. And that's what the African, it's not okay. But what I'm trying to say is that it's not okay if it's neglect. It's part of life. Right. Thank you. And that's what the African-American midwife postpartum care is so important about how they knew that women, they knew that, that, that birth after birth, you have a high rate of not making. That's why they did the care they gave, laying still, being in the dark, keeping the womb warm, you know, wrapping your stomach. And also they prayed over you. They didn't just, they, there was prayer going on. There was spiritual hymns going on. So back to the question of what can we do? I think we have to unify as women, as mothers, and have a collective voice that, until I'm safe, you're not safe. And not even make it, because it's America. It's, it's, it's racism with African descent, but it's also patriarchal with women, period, which is why we don't see midwifery um, growing, why obstetrics is still navigating and maintaining control over the female body or the female, I don't say, but the female person of how we want to have our baby. So we do need a collective voice. And I don't, have all the answers again, being involved for many, many, many nearly four, since I was 17, being involved as a leader in all these groups, I see it getting a little bit better, but we're not there yet. And having one African-American on your board is not it. If you have a board of, you know, 15 white women, we need to have at least eight on that board because you all are aggressive as a people. And mm-hmm. so we have to have numbers that can equalize it. Don't put one black Brazil. Oh, we got Mama Shafia or Sister Saran, whoever on the board. No. We need a whole bunch of us to uh, level that that playing field. We need you to, I know that boards aren't supposed to be paid, but we need you to, 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 yeah, we want to be compensated for our time because we never got our reparations, you all, and that was owed us. And we're already having a higher rate of unemployment, uh, below living wages, you name it. And so for us to take the time to come be a part of your circle to help fix it, there should be compensation for that. Those things take stress off black women and allows us to relax and to take that breath so we can truly give and not worry about, I want to be, I want to participate, but I got to get to it. I got to feed little Bobby. So if you're really con- consistent and we know you all got the resources, so find it, figure it out and make it happen is my. And the need is there. We put out that we're going to do, um, we put out, we t- we've done a bunch of like giving, I'm not going to get into what we've done, good, but um, good. given a bunch of more scholarships. And um, I know the need is there because we put out a few days ago that we were going to do five more on top of the nine we just did. And we got right. applications. So we're going to try to make it work for every single woman who's right location uh, from black women. Um, Shafia, how can women learn from you? Because I can tell you every woman who's watching right now wants to sit at your feet like you sat at those midwives feet in back home in Alabama. Yeah, it was wonderful. But really quick, um, I just want to say, uh, Aviva, that, you know, did you know Ayana Ade? Did you ever meet her? Ayana yeah, Ade. back in Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, she passed away. She yeah. was uh, my dear friend and she also inspired me to to move forward. She created the uh, CPAD, Shop Advisor African Ascent. And yeah. I was just with my third pregnancy. So we worked together for a long time. You know, she Did passed away. Texas at some point. She lives, she was from Texas. Yeah. And I you know, know she, Atlanta, yeah, yeah. So yeah, she was traveling all over the place, but she, you know, she passed some years ago from potentially uh, breast cancer. I created a scholarship in her name. So it's the Ayana, the Ayana Ade black student midwife scholarship. If you go to my website, chefemerald.com and read, we have a winner. It's the first black student that we got the award. It's a, it's a lottery system, how we do it. So I need to raise um, $1,500, well, that's what it costs. 
That's what we're raising. We need to raise $1,500 for her scholarship. I try to get out every May because of the well, coronavirus. that done for this scholarship? Oh, okay. Well, thank you. It okay. Is then- it is our, mine and Tracy's great gift to give that back. Oh, thank we you. We do an ongoing fundraising of funds through um, an online supplement store. We don't take any of the money. We donate it to no. scholarships and right, right. organizations like Mama Toto Village. So if we may, it would be my honor to... Well, if you are a black midwife student, I will be sending out pretty soon the application process and how to apply. And it's great because the last student, please read the article um, who won. She was from uh, Seattle, Washington. She goes to Utah Midwife School and she takes care of her mom, single mom of four children. She was so happy to receive that small amount. It makes a big difference. So thank you, Dr. Aviva Ram. You can find me all on Instagram under Shafia Monroe. Facebook, Shafimro Consulting. Every Wednesday, I do what we call the Wednesday Weekly Chat with Birth Workers. I have a topic from 11 o'clock. I just talk about, we talked about circumcision last week. I've talked about co-sleeping, uh, preventing racism in birth. All of those videos, by the way, I saved on we're my... Gonna get, I'm just letting you know, we're going to get cut off in a minute. Okay. And so I oh, www. Just I go to my website, shafimro.com. <laughs> you can find well, me there. Thank you, you Aviva. This is Thank wonderful. You. Looking Thank great. You. Love the picture back there. Thank you. Tell the husband hello. Kiss the I children. Will. All right. Thank you. Peace. Bye, everybody. Thank Thanks you. for joining Thank us. You it's a for pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.